All righty, we're going to continue our discussion. The I am, obviously, you picked up on that in the service. We're talking about the I am. Did you notice that? Didn't go over your heads, did he? I mean, I kind of emphasized that a little bit. We're dealing with the first I am, the I am. Jesus said this, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. We're going to John chapter 6. I'm going to spend some time there reading the, that account. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. You are looking for me not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. On him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, What must we do to do the works God requires? And Jesus answered, The works of God is this, to believe in the one who he has sent. So they asked, what miraculous sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our, fa- our forefathers ate manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from the heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, it is not Moses who gave you, who has given you bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread that of God is he which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, From now on, give us this bread. And Jesus declared, verse 35, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry. He who believes in me will never be thirsty. And it's there in that passage, verse 35, where Jesus makes an an announcement. And in fact, it's going to be controversial at some point. He who comes to me will never go hungry. And he who believes in me will never be thirsty. Jesus is talking to his disciples at this point and he's telling them he is the bread of life. He's giving them a solution not just for their physical hunger but also a solution for the emotional, their mental and especially for their spiritual hunger. I thought about hunger and I thought about cravings and I thought, you know, all of us have cravings. Every one of us at some point. Angie the other day was saying, I'm just craving for chocolate. And I said, well, that means you're low on magnesium. (laughs) You know, Got to give it back to her a little bit, you know. <laughs> and she goes, yes, I read that. <laughs> so did I. <laughs> Anyways. So we've always got those things in our lives we just crave for that moment. All of a sudden it comes out, we're like, whoa, you know, I got to have that craving. You go out and do whatever you got to do to try to get that craving. We long for it. And some of the cravings that we receive are God-given and they're good. You know, acceptance is certainly a, a God-given craving and we, we want to experience acceptance. We really do want. We need to feel secure And that's the primary teaching of Jesus, that he came to demonstrate God's personal care for you and I. And anytime you and I, anyone tries to live apart from God, our needs can quickly quickly take control of our lives. And those things can actually become obsessions, mental targets that we cannot be released from. And anytime a habit spirals out of control, it's usually a sign that something, a deeper problem inside. Maybe there's feelings of loneliness down inside you. Feelings of rejection. It could be depression, anxiety. The very fact that you're losing control of something, you fear of that. It could be just be plain boredom that's in your life at this point. Your, your life is spiraling out of control. Well, Jesus is talking to the disciples, and he says very clearly, not just the disciples, but all those within the sound of his voice, he said, I am the bread of life. He wasn't saying, I've come here to fill your stomachs. He was teaching a greater truth. He was saying, whatever your emotional need might be, whatever your spiritual or physical need may be, I'm the only one, he was saying, that can satisfy. 
I'm the only one that can satisfy that spiritual need. I, the greatest, and I thought, you know, the greatest needs that we have in our lives, according to what Jesus is saying, and he's bringing out, the greatest need in our life is a concern for our God. Amen. I came across this article. In fact, I came across two articles this week. And the one was, five ways to be a godly dad, being a great dad. Well, I'm a guy. Who reads the entire article? Doesn't happen. What I do in an article like that, I just scroll down real quick, right? I'm going for the list. I want to see how well I'm doing against the list, you know? So what I do is I skip the intro, don't need that. I skip the body, don't need that. I'm going right down to the five ways, what they might look at. And I read the list. Okay, I'm pretty good there. No, I'm all right with there. I disagree with that one. <laughs> you know, I may be struggling over here, but that's how we usually do it when looking at the eyes. And I ran another one. This has caught my eye. Twelve ways to have a crowded funeral. And I said, well, that's interesting. I'm going to stop here for a minute and look at this one. And I started thinking, well, to have a crowded funeral, I'm getting spiritual now. It must mean that my life is meaningful, right? That there are a lot of people there to celebrate my life, which meant that my life mattered. You know, I thought about my own funeral. There's an old song that I think that comes out. I want an old funeral like old King Tut. You know, remember that one? <laughs> Oh, King Tut. And I started thinking, you know, really, at my funeral, I would like to have place packed. I want the place standing room only. That's what I'm looking for anyway. I want it to be a combination, a perfect combination of laughter and memories and sadness and grief. And I want one person, at least one person, to get a t-shirt with my image, my face on it. Because I want it to be a big deal. I really do. When I was reading the article, it said this, if you want to have a, a, a crowded funeral, the first thing you need to do is sit on your front porch and on your back porch. It's saying and it's appealing to the notion that we want our lives to have meaning. And if that's the case, then we need to get involved with people. We need to invite people over for dinner. We've got to get to know our neighbors. If, your, name is, if your, na- your, your life is going to have some kind of meaning and matter, you want to be a crowded funeral, then you're going to make your life a big thing. And so I thought for a moment. I said, okay, what am I not currently doing that I need to be doing so that I won't miss out on life. And then the other thought came, what kinds of things do I need to do to be in the present in my life for my life to have meaning, for my life to carry some kind of weight in my life? Look, by no means, in a couple weeks I'm going to have a birthday. But there's no way in this world do I feel like I'm old. Don't even think that way. I'm going to go that way. Part of my nature. Thank God for that. But I do realize something too. As the years kick on, I realize that life becomes more precious because I have less time in front of me than I do behind me. I recognize that. I understand that. And and I don't want to squander the life that I have. I don't want to squander the precious life that I have. And the idea of squandering life just kind of haunts me. I don't want that. I want to go out with a bang. I really want to make a difference. Jesus makes that statement, not only one statement, but several statements, the I am statements. And when I look at the I am statements, I realize that those statements that he makes cuts to the very heart of the issues of life. Now, in this case, he's having a discussion, communication with a crowd of people. And the crowd of people that come to him that day are looking for life. They're after life. They're seeking life. They're looking for a way to define their lives. And they believe they found that life in Jesus himself. Look at it. He's a young teacher. He's a miracle worker. He's a young prophet. And if you were in the crowd that day listening to Jesus speak, 
you would have heard at least some of those things being spoken, if not even have seen some of those things firsthand. Think about when he spoke to Nathaniel. Nathaniel, he spoke to Nathaniel. There you go. He said, how do you know me, Nathaniel asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were sitting under the fig tree before Philip called. So it's in the very beginning of, uh, of the gospel. He's having this conversation with Nathaniel. He's saying, before I met you, I saw you. Really? That would give me an indication that he had some kind of knowledge, some kind of divine power. Maybe you've been at the wedding where Jesus turns the water into wine and you're sitting there and you're with your friends and you're drinking this wine and you're like, whoa, this is like the best stuff. I mean, why did they, why did they serve the best? Why didn't they serve the best at the beginning? Why, why, why did they wait now? And someone comes along and says, oh, no, 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 Jesus made this wine from water. And so there's this buzz, there's this excitement. And maybe, maybe you were around when Jesus had the conversation with the woman at the well. And all the city is now buzzing about that conversation. Or maybe you, you were there when you heard about the, or maybe you were there or heard about him healing the, the official son. Maybe you were even there when you watched the man crawl out of the pool lame and watched Jesus have a conversation with that man. The man walks in the pool of Bethsaida healed. Think about it. If you've been part of that crowd that day, you would have saw Jesus heal. You've been hearing him. You've been, you've been seeing him teach. In fact, is every single time Jesus was around, every time there was this healing or there was this teaching, the crowd at that point would believe and they would say, There's life in him. We found life. It's in him. And then you get to chapter six. Right at the very beginning of chapter six, as a crowd comes about, it's grown to thousands at this point. Scripture 5,000 plus. They're there. They're listening. They're anticipating. They're waiting. They're listening to Jesus speak. They've been there for a little while and they're getting hungry, so they begin to make plans on where they're going to go to get food. Well, to get food, they're going to have to go all the way. Some are going to have to go back to the village. Some are going to have to go back to the city. And as they're thinking about all what they're going to do to feed their stomachs, Jesus says, you don't have to go anywhere. And he grabs this young man, takes his lunch, he multiplies the bread, and he multiplies the fish, and he feeds everyone. He actually, as actually the scripture says, he had leftovers, 12 baskets. See, I tell you, when you're hanging around Jesus and you're working for him, he'll always bless you too. Amen. That's okay. Amen. And people, and they're receiving this blessing, they're seeing this miracle, and they're saying, whoa, this is the prophet. This is the one that they prophesied about. It stirs throughout the crowd, and Jesus realized this could be a problem here because this crowd... You know, their intent maybe, just maybe, to take me by force and make me king. And that ain't going to happen. No way I can. So if you had been in that crowd that day, actually, you would have had a mega church at that point. Because people had left their homes and their jobs, left their livelihood to follow Jesus. They had actually reorientated their lives around this man. They wanted to make him king because they believed they had found life in him did. As you read through the account, at the end of this conversation we read how that those thousands were re reduced just to a dozen. There was this massive shift in the hearts of this massive crowd. And many of them, the scripture says, many of them would leave, would no longer listen to what he said. In verse 
60 of John 6. On hearing it, many of the disciples said, this hearing, this is a hearing teaching, who can, this is the hard teaching, who can, who can accept it? Who can, who can, who can hear it? Who can accept it? And verse 66 says, for this time on, many of the disciples turned back and no longer followed him. What a devastating day for Jesus. He starts off ministering to these folks and there's thousands of people there. And at the end of the day, there's 12. Looks across the crowd and they're gone. What happened? There were a whole bunch of people there were looking for life. What happened was he, he, he offered them a, defi- a definition of life. And they wouldn't accept it. And that's what happens today in our society. People come to Jesus. They come to the church. They want, they want something from the Lord. They want some kind of healing miracle. They want to see. They want to see. And then the message comes forth. The gospel comes forth in a way they can't accept that message. They can't. They just can't. They're coming to Jesus looking for life. And Jesus responds to that search for life. And He exposes the emptiness of their lives. He exposed three things. In the crowd. He exploded their need. He exposed their motivation. And he exposed their allegiance. When they found him on the other side, the scripture says, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? And I want you to notice how Jesus changes the subject. They want to know how you got here. How long you been here? And Jesus answered and said, I, I tell you the truth. You're looking for me, but not because you saw miraculous signs but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. He changes the subject. Jesus, how did you get here? He says, you're only here because you're looking for more bread. The crowd is asking one thing of Jesus, and Jesus is referring to something else. And if if you didn't know know the, the event, you could step back and look at it like a movie. It would be like two individuals, conversation going on between two friends about a movie, and they're discussing this, a movie that you may never have seen. Remember Exodus? The people are caught in slavery. There's this tyrant, the Pharaoh, who has enslaved God's people. And God sends Moses, sends the plagues. Sends the, the whole purpose was to deliver the people from slavery with a mighty hand. Scripture goes on to tell us, and the account tells us that he brings them out. He brings the, all the children of Israel out. He brings them out through the waters of the Red Sea and into the wilderness. And in the chapter 15 of the book of, Ever, of Exodus, we find them singing the song called the Song of Moses. And they're all together, Mary and all a bunch of them are singing along, and they're all saying, God is our deliverer. He is strong. He prevailed over uh, Pharaoh and all of his chariots. We are terribly gratified. We are, we are, we are gratified. We're just so thankful for what God has done in our lives. They're all excited. They've been set free. And then you get into the 16th chapter. Now they're singing another song. The song they're singing there is, We had food in Egypt. We have no food here. You know, God has abandoned us. He brought us out to this desert to die. <laughs> so what did God do? I would have said, bummer on you. God doesn't do that. He provides. Aren't you glad He doesn't do that to us? In the midst of the complaining and complaining and complaining and cursing and just accusing God, what He provides. He sends, he sends bread from heaven called manna. And what do they do? 
Mantle, what is it? <laughs> Even then they couldn't even thank me. Every single day he would send manna. On the sixth day, he sends enough for two days so the people could rest. On the seventh day, which was called the Sabbath, he sends manna from heaven, bread from heaven. And the people have enough. In fact, he'll do that for the next 40 years. For the people. Every day they would wake up and God would provide. And every day they wake up and God would provide. And every day they would wake up and God would provide. Now you fast forward from the event in Exodus 16th chapter. Follow me here. A couple thousand years later, and there's more manna coming. Oh, man. What the people have just seen, they have just seen Jesus multiply the loaves. And they're talking among themselves. Do you remember back, well, forefathers? Do you remember back? Well, this is this is the sign. This is he's the breadwinner. This is the Messiah of the Messiah. He's breaking bread. He's multiplying bread. This is it. And so they come to Jesus and they start this conversation with Jesus. But Jesus knows their heart. He says, you're not coming to me. You're not coming to me? Really? See, they're coming and saying, you know, they're saying, look, you provided bread, which means that you're God's man. You were sent to save us. Save us. No, they didn't say that. They didn't say, oh, you're God's man. You've come to save us from our sins, Lord. We want to worship you. No, no, they didn't say that. They said, do you have any more bread? And Jesus answered them and he says, I'll tell you the truth. You're looking for me not because you saw miraculous signs or because you ate loaves and had your full. Don't work for food that spoils, for food that, that doesn't enjoy eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. On him, God the Father has placed the seal of approval. And this is where the conflict begins. Right here in this passage right now. Because what Jesus is doing at this moment, he's exposing, he's exposing certain things in their lives. He's exposing their expectation, what was in their heart. And so the very first thing he does is he reveals their need. He attacks them at their need. Let me tell you something, and nothing's changed. I see it over and over again. The Word of God comes forth. People are attracted to the, what they can receive, the blessing, the miracles, etc. But as soon as you begin to look at their need, to expose their real heart and need, they freak out. It'll go somewhere else. It'll do something else. We don't want it anymore. Because what he was saying to them is, look at, you know, look at, you perceive a need that's not really your need. You're coming to me. You're coming to me. Thinking. There's more manna on the way. How great it would be for this guy to fill us and feed us for the rest of our lives, for the next 40 years. Wouldn't that be life? But Jesus said, but that's not your actual need. You're coming to me looking for your physical to be taken care of, but that's not really your need. That's not your real need. That's not your real need. The Greek has two ways of talking about life. In the English, we have one, right? Because I can ask two different questions, very different meanings, and use the same root word for life. I can come to you, and I can say it in a panic, is he alive? Or I can come to say, hey, how's life? Same word, two different ways, two different responses. But in the Greek word, there's different words to express different meanings of life. One of the words for life in the Greek is bios. 
which means physical life, material life. And so we go to the passage of Scripture in Luke chapter 8. This is the woman that had the issue of blood. Scripture says she had been bleeding for 12 years. She could not, no one could hear her. She came up behind Jesus and touched the hem of his garment, the edge of his cloak, and immediately her bleeding stopped. Jesus turns around and says, Who touched me? Jesus asked. Then all denied it. And Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing against you. Are you kidding me? You want to figure out who this person is? Jesus said, No, someone touched me. I know that the power of my life, something life has come, come on her. The woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet. In the very presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. Now remember something. This woman is considered unclean. She has no business being in a crowd of people. That's one of the reasons why she's trying to hide this whole thing. But whoa, she's healed now. It's been revealed. You know, so what's she going to do? And look what Jesus said in verse 48. He says, then he said, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. Now, in Luke chapter 8, Luke uses this Greek word to talk about the woman who'd been sick for a decade. She spent all of her bios, she spent all of her money, her life savings on her medical bills. She's got no more. She spent everything she had to sustain her life physically. Gone. There's another one. Zoe. The Greek word for Zoe literally... It's not about physical life at that point, but it's about a quality of life. It's about eternal life. It's found in Romans chapter 6, verse 4. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Zoe. Eternal life. And John's writing this account. He's using, he, he uses these two words. These are people who are coming looking for bread. They, they have a physical need. They're coming to Jesus. And they want Jesus to somehow meet that physical need. A need. You would think that they would be coming with the bios. They want something eternal, but they don't. Jesus says, you, you, you know, don't look for food that perishes, but look for food for Zoe. Look for eternal life. That's what you're looking for. Don't look for just the moment of the day, just get through the day. No, no, you need something more. You need, you have a hunger, a hunger there that transcends all of your physical hunger. He says, listen to me, your thirst, you have a thirst that transcends all of your physical thirst. You have a Zoe need. You have a need for eternal life. And the only way you can meet that eternal life need is by buying a, a, a bios, uh, not with a bios, but with a, a Zoe, Zoe fill. You're looking to fill a, a fill the blank of a of a, a a a physical need with a spiritual, and you can't. You cannot find. You cannot. You have to. He says very clearly. He says, "You know what, guys? You're so concerned about your stomach, but I'm concerned with your heart." And people still didn't get it. You know why? Because the heart is deceptive. Human heart is deceptive above all else. And you and I can look in a mirror. We can say something's wrong. Life isn't like it's supposed to be. This isn't working out right. We can look out the window and say, I can't believe it. Something's got to change. We know something's gone wrong. The question is this. Do we agree with that something is wrong? Yes, we do. But now the question is this. Do we agree with God about what that thing is? And what the solution is? We have a Zoe problem. 
an eternal life problem. And we're trying to meet that with a physical, with a bios answer. We don't, it doesn't matter. Eternal problems need an eternal answer. See, our tendency as human beings is to minimize our problem. And we minimize our problems, we begin to look to, for a solution to our problem. And that solution we're looking for is something we can control. We want a solution for our life that we can control and that we can manage. That's what we want. I don't know, maybe it manifests itself like this. I need life. I have this problem. I have a problem. And maybe it's this pressure in life. I have this problem. It's a circumstance of life. It's there. And so we try to find eternal light, that Zoe, in a bottle or in a drug. We have this problem, a problem. We, we need satisfaction. We're, we're just not we're just satisfied with what's going on. So, so we try to find Zoe. We try to find eternal life. We try to find an answer to the pressures of life and the lusts of life and, and the flesh of life. But we try to do it through bios. We try to try to do it through our physical needs. I don't know. Maybe we feel like we need more affirmation in our lives. We need someone who will pick us up, care for us, and listen to what we're saying. Maybe we need... We feel like we need we need people to appreciate us and, and, and we need you know people's opinions to, to do better for us. I don't know, just to build us up and strengthen us at some point. Jesus was saying this whatever you need in the physical, the only answer you can have is not with physical things. You're gonna need a Zoe, you're gonna need eternal life, you're gonna need special life, you're gonna need something better. Whatever you're looking for in life, whatever you're looking for in life, you begin to feast on that. Whatever you're looking for in life, you begin. if I need more appreciation, if I need, you know, I want people to love me and to build me up, then that's what I'm feeding on. I'm looking for that. That's what I want. That's what I want. I want that. More people to love me, more people to care, more people to understand. And I feed on that. And Jesus is saying, that becomes your meat and that becomes your drink. That becomes your sustenance. He said, you're going to find your life and those things are going to perish. You're going to find when you're being looked that way, You'll never find fulfillment. Oh, for a moment you'll get a high. For a moment you're going to feel good. But the pleasure is going to fade. And you need more. Ultimately, none of those things fulfill you because you need a Zoe solution for your Zoe need. You need a Zoe solution for your Zoe need. We have a bio need. We try to fill it with bio. And we can't. We can only, it's a Zoe need, and we need to fill that with a Zoe. Amen. Look at verse 28 here. Then they said, what will they do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one He has sent. So they asked, what miraculous sign then will you give that we may see it and believe? What will you do? Really? You're still asking? Our forefathers ate manna in the desert as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, it is not from Moses who give, has given you bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is, is He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, from now on, give us this bread. And they still don't get it. Jesus exposing their need. And they're responding, okay, we want manna. Maybe it's manna 2.0, but we want this better manna because that's what we're looking for. We need something greater. We want manna 2.0 to fall from the sky. Tell us how to gather it. Tell us how to get it. He's exposed their need. 
He's told him you're trying to fulfill a, a need in your life with physical things, and you need you need spiritual. You need you need Zoe life. You need eternal life. That's what you need. That's how it's going to satisfy. And then he exposes their motivation. You're not here for me. You're here because of the benefits you get from me, not because of a relationship. No. And that's why they're asking. They're asking. Not for a relationship. They want, what can we do to work? They want to work this out. See, when you remove the relationship, all you have is left is work. What do I have to do? They get this idea, what's this barter with God? They really want Jesus to become a mediator between them and God. They want God to give them good things. They want Jesus to be the mediator of those good things. Take the good things from God, mediate, and give them that good thing to the people around them. They don't want Jesus as a Messiah. They just want Him for the good things. They just want Him to mediate. And Jesus very clearly says, all you want are benefits from Me. You don't want a relationship with Me. You're not coming to Me. <laughs> you're not coming to Me for, for, for true sustenance. No. You're not coming to Me for a relationship. No. You're coming to Me because what you think you can get out of this. He exposes their motivation. You know, there's a danger. There's a danger in our lives that we can be going to church and spending time in Word, etc. And we're looking for an impersonal relationship, an impersonal religion. We want an impersonal religious activity. That's what we're looking for. We don't want anything to transform or change our heart. We don't want accountability. We just want everything to get better for our lives. For our lives. I ran across a story about a man who, a missionary, who ministered in the desert region. And one of the ways he would show his love for the people he was ministering to, he would go to the city and he would get clean water from the city and he would go to the villages, one village after another, and he would bring water to them. He would go to the city, load up the wagon with barrels and full of clean water, and he would take them and distribute them amongst the people so they could live. And one day, he leaves the city and takes the clean water to the first village. He then leaves the first village. He's heading towards the second village, second village, but he never makes it. Never makes it at all. The villagers wait. Day passes by. Two days pass by. Finally, they send out a, a party looking for him, and they find the man. They find the man in his wagon, full of the wagon full of water, and he's dead. And they take him back into the city. They take him to the hospital, and the doctor looks at the man and he says to him, "He died of thirst." He died of thirst. He's got all this water around him, but he dies of thirst. He had everything he needed to live within his reach, but he failed to drink. And I thought about that little illustration, that little story, and I said, you know, so many people are just like that. We're in it for the benefits of Christianity, but not the Christ of Christianity. And if you're not in it for the Christ of Christianity, you're just like this guy. You go to church, you bring your money, you go do religious things, but you never drink, you never experience. Maybe you're coming to church. Maybe folks come to church because they're motivated by guilt. They're motivated by self-righteousness, motivated by emotionalism, motivated by friends or family. Or, but they never drink and they never really taste. They just are spectators. And you know what? You can end up seeing this in a specific way. It manifests itself in a specific way. Because if we're in it for the benefits, not for Jesus, then there's going to be a difference between our public appearance and our relationship we have and the private reality of our relationship. 
we will look we will look right. We'll look like we're religious. We'll look like everything's fine. But in the privacy of our home, there's nothing. We'll have a tendency to talk a lot about God, but never talk to Him. And that's a problem. We can talk a lot about God's Word, but we never read His Word. Because believing what believing that what really matters most is what everybody else is saying about us. What the crowd is saying about us. Instead of getting time away with our Lord and listen to what He says about us and apply it to us. I'll tell you something. It's real easy for us to fool a lot of people. But as I go through scriptures, I realize God's no fool. He's no fool. And what's going to happen if all we want is the benefits of Christianity and not the Christ of Christianity, then, then really what we're looking for, something from Jesus, and as a result, nothing's ever going to change in our heart. Because relationships are what brings everlasting change in life. Folks, I'm a Patriots fan. You know. They're 7-0. They're getting into their harder area. Who knows what's going to happen today with the Ravens. But the truth is this. I'm not different because I'm a Patriots fan. It hasn't changed me. My parents have had effect in my life. My wife has. My kids have. You as a church have had effect in my life. And I think you can see the effect of that, those relationships all over me. And if that's true, think about how much truer that is when it comes to Jesus Christ and the relationship He has over my life, over yours. If that relationship with Christ is going to make a real difference in our life, because we're going to become holy as He's holy, we're going to become separate, we're going to conform into the image of the God's Son, that we might be that that <laughs> He might be the firstborn among many brethren. You will look like Him, but you'll never look like Him by avoiding a relationship with Him. It's impossible. And a relationship with Christ does not come from wanting things from Him. And so as a result, He's exposing their motivation. He's saying to them, why are you here? What are you really here for? What are you really here for? Jesus then declares to them, and this is the problem right now, this is where everything begins to fall apart. He says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry. He will, what? He who believes in me will never be thirsty. This is where it all begins to hit the fan. He's what he's saying here. He is, you have to eat my flesh, you have to drink my blood. And the rest of the chapter, he impacts the I am statement. I am the bread of life. And it's at this point the crowd turns on him. Because this is the definition of life they just cannot accept. Jesus says, you're coming to me? Fine. I've not come to bring bread so you can improve your life. I came to be your life. And they reject that definition. They don't want that. Jesus said that true life is in me. The Father said true life is in my Son. Jesus said I am the bread of life. Which means I am both the meaning and the means of life. The means by which you can live and the meaning of what, and I give meaning to what life's all about. But he didn't stop there. He went on to say this. Whoever comes to me in faith will never hunger. Whoever believes in me will never thirst. Here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying simply this. He looks at them and says, I'm all you need. I'm the thing you're looking for. 
to have me and nothing else is to have everything. Therefore, he says, I want you to turn from whatever you're currently looking to for life. And the crowd says to him, nope, we're out of here. No more. Gone. Out of here. Gone. Bingo. For them, it was fine to be with Jesus, to listen to his teachings, to follow him around as long as, as long as he didn't demand anything from them. And so what he does, he exploits their allegiances. Their allegiance was to their stomach. Their allegiance was to their lives, to bettering their lives. They wanted him to become king. But Jesus, once he demands allegiance, an ounce of allegiance to them, he says, nope. He said, the thing you're looking for, you're looking for life. The bread you want won't actually fill you. That's what you're looking for. Turn from what from that, that is and you trust in me. And what he does is he draws a line in the sand. And the crowds, they just wave and they walk away. Because they said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? And that's what happens every day the gospel is preached to folks. The true gospel being preached. Wow, it made me uncomfortable. Who can accept this? Who can accept this? You know, I find interesting that at this point, Jesus has been in ministry for just about three years and some change. A little less than that. And if you go through the Gospel of John, it's about this point in the Gospel where the third year of his ministry is actually being revealed. What I find interesting is these folks who were following Christ in the very beginning of this passage, they have been walking with Jesus, they've been talking with Jesus, they've heard from Him, and they missed Him. They wanted Jesus to be their meal ticket. They wanted Him to be a politician. They wanted Him to be an entertainer. They wanted Him to be a healer. They wanted Christ to conform to their own image, their own expectations, that's what they wanted. Doesn't that sound like most folks today, a lot of folks? They were affected by Him. They experienced Him. They were impassioned by Him. They were impressed by Him, but they missed Him. And as a result, they missed life. Jesus so clearly, He said, I am the bread of life. He said, I am the bread of life, so turn from whatever it is you're finding life in. You know, my fear is, my fear is that we'll look at the bread that's in his hand and look at, sorry, look at the bread that's in our hand and then we'll look to Jesus and we'll close our hands and grasp our bread all the more. Saying, you know what, I have life. I have bread. I have life. I have everything that I need right now. I have my job. I, I might have an addiction. I've got that. I've got to get that under control. I have a relationship. I have my dreams. I'm holding on to that. Jesus, to get you, I have to give up this. And I don't know. I don't know. And they walk away. Because they're not interested in real life. Not really. And as I read through the Scripture, I realize that Jesus is saying, I am the bread of life. What He was saying is simply this, I am the only bread that will break for you. All of the breaks out there are going to break you. They'll destroy you. Try it and see. It'll leave you wanting. It'll leave you broken. Jesus comes along and says, I'm the bread of life. He finds us starving to death, a stomach's full of Savior substitution. Eating to become hungry again. Drinking to become thirsty again. 
looking for life and never finding it. And Jesus said, I am what you're looking for. I'm all you need. I am enough. And then he goes to the cross as the bread of life. His life is broken for us. He dies in our place. He bears the penalty that was ours to bear. He rises again in victory over sin, death, so the hungry sinners might feast on grace and the thirsty sinners might drink cups of forgiveness and cups of love and cups of allegiance to Christ. And as much as the manna from heaven came down and fed, the fathers in the wilderness, Jesus, now the bread of life, comes down to be our enough for each every day. The disciples knew that. Not the false disciples, not the crowd, but the disciples knew that. They knew that. So you've got two groups conversation going on. Two groups. You've got the large crowd and the conversation between the large crowd and the group of, of the twelve. And the twelve do not respond the way the crowd does. Verse 66 says, From this time many of the disciples turned back and no longer followed Him. And Jesus turns to the remainder and He says this, Do you want to leave too? Do you? And, and Jesus asks the twelve. And Simon Peter answers. He's the guy that's always got his foot in his mouth, but he gets it right sometimes, doesn't he? He says, Jesus, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. You see how the difference is between true belief and false belief? False belief. It says, your words are too hard. We, 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 can't, we can't listen to them. False belief, which when the word comes forth, it hardens their heart. True belief says, your words are life. May not understand it completely, but your words of life, I know who you are. True belief is, is softened by the words of Jesus. True belief is broken by the words of, of Jesus. Uh, you know, true belief is sustained by the words of Jesus. False belief fails. When an allegiance is demanded, it bails. Jesus draws that line in the sand. And they say, He says, I'm all you need. And false belief says, No, there's other things we can go for. This is not gonna, there's another plan someplace out here. True belief says, where can we go, Jesus? What rabbi teaches like you? We've heard you speak in the temple. What a, who has authority like you have? True belief says, we saw you walk on water. We know you have power. Who has that kind of power? We saw you calm the sea. We saw you calm the storm. You have mercy. Who has mercy like that? We, we heard you with the woman at the well. Who has that courage like you? We saw you before the mobs. We saw you on trial. We saw you speak the truth to the face of your accusers. Who is faith like that? True belief says. We saw you and heard you weeping in the garden when you said, not my will, but your will be done. True belief says, we saw you nailed to the cross. That cross was driven into the ground. Who is grace like you? True belief says, we heard you speak forgiveness over your enemies. Who is victory like you? We saw you walk over death, dead body in the way, out of the grave so death has no longer a sting in you and your life is victory. Who has who has rule like you? And you've ascended to the right hand of the Father, and everything is subject to your under your feet. Jesus, you are the you are the end of all things. And in the end, you're going to burst through the clouds, and you're going to bring final and complete defeat over the enemies, and final complete restoration of all that are lost. Where can we go? Nowhere. No one. We're going to close this thing down. Really what I want us to do is just to bow our heads and take a few moments and simply say, 
I want to open up my hands to you. I want to let go of everything and anything that I have used as a substitute for you, my Savior. If it's people's opinion, if I hold fast to that and I think that's really important, I need to let that go. If I have some relationship in my life that I cannot live without, and I need to let that go. If it's the affirmation that I'm looking for in people's life, I need to let that go. If it's some kind of a, uh, I don't know, an addiction, we need to let that thing go. We need to let open our hands and just let it go and confess that that thing which we've been holding on to is really a Savior substitute, and it needs to be let go. It's a sign of surrender. When we open up our hands, it's a sign of surrender. We're saying to God, you alone, you alone are the one to sustain me. You must be the one to sustain me. As great as a relationship that I have here on this earth, it is, they are not the bread of life. And we need to give ourselves over to the real thing. So well, I said this in his prayer. Fine. Great. Praise God for that. You consider Christian great. But there's still things we can be holding on to. That we need to let go. We're holding on to Jesus for the healing. We're holding on to Jesus for, for the blessing. We're holding on to Jesus. That's what, No, no, no. Listen, stop. We want a relationship. Sign of surrender. If your bread is a... Whatever it might be. Whatever it is. It needs to be a sign of surrender in our lives. Open up our hands. Give it, Lord. Give it, Lord. Jesus didn't come to his disciples and say, you better not leave. He didn't do that. He didn't command them. He didn't say, you better not leave. No, no. He asked them, are you going to walk away too? He challenged them. And I think we need to open our hands and say, Christ, we love you, Lord. We love you, Lord. We want to thank you for your goodness and for your grace. And we confess you, Lord Jesus, you are all of my life. And those things in my life that I've kind of held on to other things, that's got to go, Lord. You alone are my life. got to leave that. I don't want to treat you like a fool. I want to pretend something's different and it's not. I want to sincerely and generally be sustained by you. And I know he's eager. You, Lord, are eager to do that. Give me this through and go. So whatever the bread is in our hand, whatever causes us to fear, whatever causes us to, to, to be anxious, whatever causes us to Try to find hope or try to fill this void. Whatever it is, let it go. Let it go. Because it's going to fail anyway. I'll tell you what, by doing that, you're making a rich trade. You're making a rich trade. You're giving up something that will never give you a return. He is so merciful to us and to you. Amen. Life is about Him. We need to get to understand that. Life is only found in Christ. We need to understand that. As we read His Word, as we apply those precepts and principles, allow the Spirit of God to transform our hearts and get our eyes off of the, get our eyes on this, and see life the way it should be seen, our lives can be transformed and changed. Our priorities will change. But there's always this issue of fear, because we like to control things. The challenge, why we're doing the I am's, is for us to get a deeper understanding of who Jesus truly is. Maybe that will encourage us to let go. Amen. To let go. To let God be who He calls us to be, who He is, and what He calls us to be. Amen.
We're going to go into prayer now. This is a good time just for us to spend some time before the Lord. Amen? Is that all right? He said, I am what? I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. All right. Come on before him. He is our God. And if he's for us, who could be against him? Amen. He is the great I am. The great I am. Father, we want to thank you for your word, Lord. I thank you for the information that you give, the, the well, the invitation that you make to each one of us. And Father, let us just take time and evaluate our lives and just see exactly what it is that we're holding on to. Things that uh, we look forward to, things that give us strength and things that give us a, a sense of meaning. And Father, let's make certain that they're not substitutes for our Savior. Such a strength, and as always, you do draw us closer together, Lord. Allow us to abound in your grace and mercy because we need a bunch of it. And Lord, we ask that you continue to lead us and direct us in a way that we can become more like you in all things. Fill this place with those of a desire for your word, not just to hear the word, but to be doers of the same. And then therefore no longer grieving or quenching your spirit, Lord, but affecting the way we worship, the way we praise, the way we live our lives for those around us. We love you, Paul. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Folks, you're dismissed in Jesus' name.